watcher. Today we have a very short review of the exploratory achievements of Peter Kemp and an interview with Jason Kimberley, the first person I've ever met who's harnessed up and done the hauling thing, and I'll also briefly discuss getting toasty. In 1833, Daniel Bennett and Sons, a shipping concern similar in nature to that of the Enderby brothers, appointed experienced Southern Ocean sealer Peter Kemp, commander of their snore, and yes, that's the thing, the magnet. By this time, John Biscoe's Antarctic discoveries were widely known, Charles Enderby having presented an account of Biscoe's findings to the Royal Geographical Society in February that year. Kemp is thought to have studied Biscoe's work and taken on the advice to adopt an easterly heading at the Antarctic margin in order to take advantage of the prevailing winds. In 1833, Kemp sailed for the Ile Kerguelen with 17 crew. Daniel Bennett also furnished him with two of the latest model chronometers to help ensure accurate observations in charting any discoveries. After reprovisioning at Kerguelen, the magnet sailed south, reporting a land sighting after 180 nautical miles. Either the sighting was a false positive, or Kemp was a crook navigator, as the only land at that latitude is Heard Island, and that lay too far away from his reported position to have been visible, even with its two-mile-high volcano. Kemp, eager to reach the pack, did not investigate further, Heard Island going unvisited until 1854. The magnet reached the pack in mid-December, and land was sighted around Christmas, but the pack ice was becoming increasingly difficult to traverse, and the ship turned north on the 29th. The land sighted from the magnet came to be known as Kemp Land on charts, but would remain hidden behind particularly difficult pack, not being sighted again until the 1930 expedition led by Sir Douglas Mawson. The magnet returned to the Ile Kerguelen and spent three months hunting elephant seals. Kemp fell overboard and drowned on the return to London. Someone left the log of the magnet in a cab, making the only record of Kemp's discoveries a single chart lodged with a hydrographic service. No one's ever disputed that the coast he sighted should be named Kempland, but territorial rights over the area would later be contested by Australia and Norwegian interests. And sadly, that's about all I can find about Peter Kemp. So now, on to the interview with Jason Kimberley. Would you mind introducing yourself? Just for the, for the uh, certainly, uh, Jason Kimberley, um, Antarctic traveller. <laughs> nice one. And um, there's a lot more to the, the Jason Kimberley story than that. You've also been a mountaineer, uh, worked in retail, yeah. um, photographer. Yeah. Um, you first came on my radar. A mutual friend introduced us because of our interest in Antarctica and. I didn't at first put the pieces together, but I'd read your book. I borrowed, um, borrowed it from the library. Mm-hmm. And it struck me as one of the most accessible books about Antarctica. There are a lot of people... Well, historically, in the, in the, in the heroic era, people wrote for accessibility. They wanted to share the experience. They wanted people to understand what living in Antarctica was. And a lot of modern writers seem to want to slip into jargon and clickishness. Yeah. So can you can you let the listeners know what it was that first drew you to Antarctica, mm-hmm. what that experience did to you, and 
how, sure. the, how the book came about. Sure. Well, I suppose um, well, Antarctica for me is the last continent that I uh, to, to visit. I've never been to Antarctica, and um, as a result of just that simple fact of having been to other continents, I wanted to get there. Um, uh, I'm not someone who necessarily has checklists, but I thought you know, it's some place that I always wanted to go and see, and I'd uh, heard and uh, um, read about the uh, stories of, uh, of Burke and Wills in, in Australia, and was always, you know, Robinson Crusoe was my favourite book as a kid, and I always liked the idea of sort of, you know, isolation and fending for yourself and, um, you know, those types of uh, challenges. So, you know, the stories of um, uh, Scott and Shackleton and the Mudson were things that I was, you know, sort of vaguely familiar with growing up and uh, it always had, you know, great, uh, great attraction to, to get there. So I suppose that's what got me, um, you know, thinking about Antarctica and a mate of mine, um, uh, Pete Hillary, who I've done on a few expeditions with, uh, was always really dead keen to go and climb Mount Vincent in, in Antarctica. And I uh, had a mate of mine who I really wanted to come with me to Antarctica, and he's a bit clumsy and uh, was very apprehensive about climbing any sort of mountain. And he said, you know, you know what I'm like. He said, I'll, I'll probably fall and drag all of us off the hill. So we uh, determined to go on an old-fashioned sort of man-hauling trek, and um, we sort of went to places that no one ever been before um, on the basis that um, we just wanted to you know discover a few things for ourselves and there was no sort of end point that we had to get to and in fact Pete um, remarked on the trip down there he said this is the most relaxed enjoyable expedition I have ever been on without doubt because we always have to get somewhere. We always have to do something by a certain time. And um, it was quite unusual for him. You know, we sort of had to hold him back a bit. And once he got into his head, no, we don't need to be anywhere by any time. And he wanted to set his watch on, you know, we're going to take Australian time or Argentinian time. I said, who gives a shit what time we're on? We're just here. Don't worry about the time. He said, oh, we have to, you know, check in every day. And I said, well, you use whatever time you want and check in when we have to check in. But we're just here to absolutely immerse ourselves into the landscape and absorb everything we can and just have a great time i think the the book reflects that very well and it was it was amazing to read about peter hillary's experience of your trip um and you you quite regularly quote in the book itself um his own book in the ghost country which is a very distressing book to read it's it's a horrible account of an expedition where the people didn't gel and there was some lack of preparation and it's just it's a nightmare of mind games and boot repair yeah so it was lovely to actually read about him having a having a re- what sounded like a really nice time mm. yeah and you know he's some, you know someone who's you know been on he's been to Antarctica about 15 times and he's climbed Everest a couple of times and I was in uh, Everest base camp with him in 2010 or 2012 check that um and i said how what are your memories of this place he said i have lived a year of my life in everest base camp and he said you know there's been a lot of uh joy here there's been a lot of heartache and a lot of you know miserable miserable times you know feeling bad uh wanting to climb poor weather everything's sort of working against you and you're trying to you know scarper up this um you know pretty incredible and difficult uh mountain 
and to try and make that work with uh, all sorts of demands uh, on you. He said it's, uh, you know, he, he said he had very mixed emotions of Everest Base Camp, but he calculated, he said, I've spent you know, more than 365 days in this spot. And this spot is just a collection of um, boulders, crunching, grinding blocks of ice and a really inhospitable place. And it looks like about 20, must be about 23,000 feet Everest Base Camp, maybe 22, but it's a decent height. Yeah. He must have spent considerably more time in Antarctica with some of the expeditions he's taken. Yeah, yeah. He uh, he has. He went on um, <clears throat> uh, that one you mentioned before with um, Eric Phillips. Phillips, yeah, Eric Phillips and John Muir, uh, where you know from sort of the, it was apparent to him that sort of ten days in that he would been um, uh, pinpointed as you know the odd guy out for whatever reason, um, and there was you know tension in the camp right from the start and. Uh, the, uh, you know, the sleds were too heavy and they couldn't make progress. And I remember him telling us, you know, the sleds weighed 200 kilograms. And he said things hadn't been properly tested and um, Phillips had been organising the whole uh, expedition, um, not um, possibly not as well as he might have. And uh, he said just that first day of strapping on a 200 kilogram uh, sled and trying to move it, he said, no, even this, I think uh, his words are something like, you know, the slightest hummock or suggestion of a hill just uh, put the uh, the brakes on you. And uh, he just wondered how they were ever going to make it with all this um, gear they had. Mm. Hauling is such a feature of the history of human activity in Antarctica. I'm, I'm fascinated. You're the first person I've met that has actually done that activity. Uh-huh. I've met people that have dived and people that have been there as a tourist and as researchers yeah. and drillers. Um, you're the first person I know that has actually strapped on the harness and mm-hmm. hauled your equipment along behind you. <laughs> and that is kind of staggering, just the accounts that you read of Shackleton and Scott's experiences mm. in harness yeah. um, are quite horrific. How did you find... How did you find... Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's quite... Well, I think get back to that sort of Robinson Crusoe, Burke and Will sort of um, uh, thought, you know, you're, you're totally dependent on yourself and you know the, the, and your two your two mates you're with but the, the group of the three of you you've got everything or you hope you've got everything you could possibly need for you know the the month that lays ahead i mean we end up being there for sort of three weeks but it's not the sort of place you want to cater just for three weeks you know in case so uh, you know there's no uh, shop to nip off and uh, you know buy a hot chocolate or uh, an extra scarf or anything like that if it's not on your back or on your sled well it just it doesn't exist so I suppose the uh, the preparation and the planning and the, all the contingencies of what could possibly uh, go wrong and uh, what might be nice to have, but what's you know ultimately might be superfluous, and going through all your gear and you know going through like removing all the uh, the labels and tags or bits that aren't necessary on all your gear. So you know you might be able to shave off three or four kilograms by removing you know um, clips and buttons and zip tags that you're never going to use, whatever it might be. So all those sort of little things you know, add up, and so that might mean you can take a bit of extra powdered milk or your um, you know, um, uh, uh, flavoured drinks might last an extra few days because you can slip a few more in and there's all these weight considerations. So I suppose it's quite exhilarating in a lot of ways knowing that it's just you and what's on your back and what's on your sled and there is no real sort of backup plan beyond that and you have to make 
inform sort of careful decisions and for example something like the stove which is you know your lifeblood if you can't melt snow and ice to you know create water where you can't cook and you can't drink and you're essentially rooted so the stove it was determined very early on was never to be touched by uh, Dr Xavier Mertz as he was known Jason Veal because by his uh, although he was clumsy and didn't want to climb Mount Vincent it's also very heavy-handed so clumsiness and heavy-handedness aren't the things you're after in Antarctica. So rather than exclude him, we just excluded him from the stove. He was never to touch it under any circumstances. That was to be left to the more delicate fingers of Kimberly and Hillary. <laughs> and he accepted that very early on with, um, with sort of a degree of pride that <laughs> the dead hand would not go near the stove. <laughs> it's, a, it's another feature of the book that I really enjoyed was um, your role as cook. Mm-hmm. You spent a lot of time with the stove and grew to know it intimately and yeah. relished that role of almost the ritual of making the water to make the, to boil it to make the hot drink that yeah. would re- revive everyone. Um, and that's part of the conceit of iced coffee is that I'm in Antarctica brewing up <laughs> while I review Antarctic history. I don't think I'm fooling anyone, mm. but it's a fun thing for me to play with yeah, the yeah, soundscape. Yeah. <clears throat> um, but yes, that that absolute critical piece of... Well, there were very few pieces of your equipment that aren't critical mm. in those situations. You're right, right on the edge of what's humanly possible. The stove resonated with me just my love of the primer stove yeah. and the ritual of making the food yeah. just well that's critical you know and we'd always we'd set up the tents we had two tents that sort of butted together and we had little um uh, annex that we put over the top of the joint to sort of extra weatherproof it so um typically i'd be in one tent with all the uh, food and the cooking equipment and any spare gear and um uh, hillary and uh, uh mertz would be in the other tent so We'd get up the two tents just quickly without the flies on, and I'd go in and I'd start uh, boiling uh, in the little strip of snow and ice between the two tents, a little strip of about maybe 40 centimetres, 50 centimetres gap, and that was the, the cooking area. We cooked directly on the uh, on the ice. We had a little um, a board under the uh, oven, so it, the stove so it wouldn't melt into the uh, the ice or snow, whatever we're sitting on. And uh, yeah, I would just start uh, doing that, and I'd place a whole um, uh, bundle of uh, uh, ice blocks outside the door that I could reach and I had a little sort of trowel there that I'd chip away at that so it could fit in the pot and we had a big boiling pot so you know every day you'd spend probably three or four hours melting snow. <laughs> three or four hours working working yeah, over a hot working stove. Working over the stove and yeah you don't have to watch it the whole time but you know you're, you're mindful of what's going on at the same time you taking some of that water and heating it and adding that to the various thermoses and then putting more ice in and it's quite a a stringent um, rotation policy of, okay, who needs the hot drink? Where's the, give me your water from your existing uh, thermoses. Let's put that in here. Um, where's the hot drinks going to go? Okay, we can take the water from that and the water from this. We'll combine that. That'll get us going. We'll have a hot drink in sort of 10 minutes as opposed to maybe half an hour if we just started with ice. So you'd always be rotating um, all the various uh, thermoses around and putting water uh, back into uh, into the pots and then, taking some water out to uh, hydrate your dinner and that would sort of be sitting for 40 minutes while hydrated and then you'd add a bit more water and put some heat in it and then you'd sort of serve up that in the meantime taking orders for all the uh, the various hot drinks so when the blokes came in from putting the fly on and securing the uh, tent and 
potentially building a, um, a snow wall uh, uh, around the tent out of you know blocks of compacted snow that we'd cut up out of the ground um, using our ice axes. Um, you know, so that when, as soon as the guys came in freezing, and that probably worked maybe an extra, I don't know, maybe extra half hour to an hour on top of what I had to have all those hot drinks ready for them uh, as soon as they came in. So it was, uh, it's um, I suppose one of the uh, joys of you know food preparation is you know that you get to you know look after other people and uh, and uh, and share some love and you know give them exactly um, what they need when they need it, which uh, in those really tough situations is uh, is really rewarding yeah the trip is 10 years in your past but it still mm. resonates it had a, a major transformative effect on you can you describe that for us yeah sure I think um, uh, the thing about Antarctica is it's almost at once the most beautiful and hostile environment you could possibly imagine um, and I say it once because it can change very quickly <laughs> uh, and it's all dependent on the wind um, you know, cloud cover, sunny day is sort of not so much of an issue but when that wind gets up it is um, it absolutely changes the, uh, the dynamic of the place so what might have been the most glorious, crisp, clear day um, and even if it's sort of minus 15 you can sort of, you know Take your take your gloves off and take some photos and minus fifteen you can have your hands out for I don't know ten minutes or so and it's sort of right. But when that wind pops up and even if it's just a light breeze, ten fifteen k's an hour, it just strips away that sort of uh, that layer of warmth that just sits on your skin and the wind chill is uh, is phenomenal. So uh, as soon as that starts, it really makes you concentrate on on what you're doing. So. I suppose the fact of having to really spend your whole you know, 24 hours, and it sort of sounds crazy, even while you're asleep, you're thinking about staying warm and, and being warm. And uh, uh, I think it does have a bit of a, uh, an impact on you that that living on the edge, and particularly when you do things that are a little bit more dangerous, like travelling through a crevasse field, um, and you know that a false step, whilst not guaranteeing death, it's going to be... Uh, a very bad experience falling down a crevasse and having to get hauled out and potentially broken limbs, etc., etc. So that feeling of you might hear people sort of talk about, oh, I've never felt more alive. Well, you never feel more alive walking through a crevasse field, towing a sled behind you, and when the sled slides off the edge and goes into a crevasse and starts pulling you in, and you bob down and get a low centre of gravity and brace yourself. Uh, with your crampons and dig into the ice and just hope that your grip is stronger than the um, inertia pulling the sled into the crevasse, that's when you really know, you know, you're alive. And I think that uh, those sorts of experiences, which, you know, we don't really get too often, um, can have quite, quite an impact on you. And I suppose the main... Uh, the biggest impact for me was uh, researching um, uh, a book that I subsequently wrote about our adventures down there, uh, Antarctica, a different adventure, as it turns out, uh, and researching you know, that, that book and discovering, um, understanding more about those who had gone before us, which was really interesting. But I think more so was the impact that um, humans are having on the... Um, 
on the whole biosphere in Antarctica, um, whether it's the culmination of um, uh, HFCs and CFCs and depletion of the ozone layer, um, whether it's the um, acidification of the uh, the, ocean, the Southern Ocean and the difficulty that some of the zooplankton are having creating their, their shells, um, whether it's the fishermen coming down and netting krill by the boatload in a largely unregulated industry and using those krill as additives to make um, pellets to feed cattle that are grazing on cleared Amazonian rainforest to make hamburgers for North Americans who one could argue probably didn't need another hamburger and because this is largely unregulated and people are making a dollar at every step of the journey it happens and I thought Jesus this is um outrageous and I thought what else is going on like this and it turns out there's you know hundreds if not thousands of um, things like this going on where we just keep pulling and pulling and pulling these uh, withdrawals out of uh, nature's bank without making any deposits and I just thought I would like to do something about this what could I possibly do so I made a little pledge to myself that when the book was completed, I would do something. Didn't know what it was going to be, but I'd do something. So I had a good think about it and thought, what is, what's important and how can, um, how can one reach people? And I thought, well, there's about three million kids sitting in classrooms around Australia. What are they learning about these types of things? And... Most of the communication was very negative, it was very gloom and doom, and it was very much don't do this, don't do that. There wasn't much of a, um, uh, there wasn't much good news around, there wasn't very many positive stories, it was all very negative. And it was all, a lot of it caught up in, you know, dry science speak, and if I read the word anthropogenic again, I was going to bloody strangle someone. I said, yeah, human caused, bang, everyone understands that. Uh, anthropogenic, I can't even spell it let alone, you know, who knows what it means, no one. So there was a big opportunity that we identified for plain speaking, engaging content, talk with a smile on your face, and let's look at some of the really good things that are happening, and also let's look at some of our challenges, not as problems that we can't solve, but as challenges that have solutions and have um, ready-made ways to start fixing things. So the whole Antarctic experience uh, in sort of a direct and also an indirect way, you know, through, through writing the, the book after um, uh, the time down there, has, uh, yeah, led me to um, found this organisation, which was originally started off as Cool Melbourne back in 2008, and now, in 2015, Cool Australia, which we have updated to, is now um, you know, the leading online environmental education organisation in Australia. We have 35,000 uh, educators who use our services. It's all free to access. This year, 2015, they'll reach over 800,000 kids across Australia. And we're looking now um, of expanding sustainability. With sustainability, we've mainly focused on environmental sustainability. But now we're looking more to um, uh, social sustainability and economic sustainability and what that means for everyone and uh, how we can still live good, prosperous lives in a good society 
but without the idea of infinite growth on a finite planet, which is both mathematically impossible and just plain fucking silly. So, um, yeah. I'd just like to add that iced coffee fully endorses Cool Australia. I use the resources <laughs> at home with my children um, when I've got a rainy day and looking for something scientific to do with them. Yeah, good. It's wonderful. It's, yeah. it's a really wonderful resource that you've made available for Australian schools. Yeah. The crevasse field. Yeah. Um, listeners won't understand, but I shut my eyes in grim <laughs> horror when you mentioned it, and it really is nightmarish stuff to, to me personally. I, yeah. I, I worked on sea ice. I'm, I'm fine with sea cracks, mm-hmm. and the, the crevasse field training that I did really spooked me and made mm. me very grateful that I would only be working on the sea ice. <laughs> and um, your friend, you nicknamed Mertz. Yeah. Which, oh, I don't know, was that... <laughs> Is that tempting fate? He, he, he didn't enjoy himself out there. Well, it might have. Well, I was, um, uh, well, to, just to backtrack a little, because we had um, uh, Peter Hillary, Jason Veal, and Jason Kimberley. And on the first trip, there was just Jason this and Jason. I thought, okay, this is on our first um, training weekend. I thought, well, this just can't work, two Jasons. So I uh, suggested that all three of us take on the name of an ill fated Antarctic explorer. <laughs> So Pete Hillary, uh, his hero is uh, is Shackleton, so uh, and our leader. So we happily called him the boss, uh, which was Shackleton's nickname to his men. Jason Veal, who was a, you know is a bit clumsy and heavy-handed. We found a character um, called Z- Dr. Xavier Mertz, who was a Swiss Alpine uh, cross well, Alpine a cross-country skier from Switzerland, and he was a doctor. Although it's never been established clearly what he was a doctor of. Um, I did a lot of research and couldn't find out what he was a doctor of. Anyway, he partnered with Mawson and Ninnis on an expedition in Antarctica. And uh, poor old Ninnis fell down a crevasse, never to be seen again, and he had most of the supplies. And um, uh, Mawson and Mertz had to backtrack to get back to base to catch the ship, I think the Nimrod, which was sort of leaving on a set date to escape the sea ice and not get caught there. And, uh, yeah, Mertz um, had a terrible time and um, uh, deteriorated uh, horribly. He was, um, because he was ill, he took what he thought was the prized piece of the dogs as they killed the dogs on the way back. It was their only sort of source of food. And he ate the liver, which was um, quite soft and easy to chew. But what he didn't realise at the time, he was giving himself a massive overdose of vitamin A, and that can send you quite uh, nutty. Uh, yeah, so you know, so Mertz was loaded up on dog liver and going mental with this um, vitamin A uh, overload, and uh, um, he essentially lost the plot and started biting off his fingers and spitting them at, uh, at Mawson, and uh, it was quite a sort of a, an unsavoury finish. But um, Doctor Doctor Xavier Mertz uh, became Jason Veal's moniker. And uh, I was always fascinated with um, Titus Oates um, uh, from the Scott expedition, um, who had a, a problem with his uh, with his foot and had some shocking frostbite and gangrene. And when he realised he was uh, holding the the group back, he uh, walked the door of the tent. I think there was only three or four guys left of the expedition on the way back from the South Pole. There had been an absolute disaster in that. They weren't going to make it back alive. And uh, Oates walked to the door of the tent and turned back. And Scott noted in his diaries that uh, Oates said, uh, Gentlemen, I'm going outside and maybe sometime 
and walked off to his death, never to be seen again. So I was always um, full of admiration of uh, Oates and his stoicism and his sacrifice for his uh, his team members. Yeah, so I became uh, Titus Oates. Um, so yeah, so right through the whole trip, it was uh, Oates. Got a bit of Titus, and uh, Jasonville was uh, uh, Mertz or the Good Doctor. You wrote in the book that um, of the characters of Antarctic history, Oates is perhaps the one that you would most like to was it go to the pub with and yeah, you seem like a nice bloke to go to the pub with and have a beer. And it's you know with those um, uh, the photos of those guys from you know a hundred years ago and. I don't know, faces sort of, some faces look a bit different and sort of do look a bit like from other era, but Oates, you know, just looked like he'd sort of, you know, got off his bike and pulled up out the front of your house. He, uh, I don't know, he had a certain um, modern look to him, if I could say that. Some expeditions have multiple accounts, and I'm thinking particularly of the winter trip from Scott's expedition where... um, Bowers, Cherry Apsley Garrard and Adrian Wilson trekked to Cape Crozier to collect penguin eggs. Mm. Cherry Apsley Garrard wrote The Worst Journey in the World, which is one of the, the great literary works to come from Antarctica, and it, it describes nightmares, where Adrian Wilson's diaries, it sounds like hard work, but it was just something he did. Mm. Do you think that... If Mertz or the boss were to write the account of your expedition, it would it would mirror yours. Do you think? Um, I I would think it's about. I, I, I obviously I would, it's difficult, if not impossible, to um, say what another person would be thinking. But um, all I could say is that I've given a, a um, uh, as honest and accurate account as I possibly could of the way things transpired. So um, if they were to do the same, I would imagine it would be fairly similar, obviously told with a different sort of style. But um, I got both of them to read the book before, you know, before it went to the publisher or was first signed off and there was... Uh, you know, what do you think? Is there anything in here that you find offensive, um, grossly inaccurate, or betrays you in an unfair light? Um, I'm not saying, you know, if you look stupid because you were stupid, that's staying in. <laughs> but if you think I've unfairly <coughs> fabricated or exaggerated, let me know. Uh, and the only thing that was changed was um, Pete Hillary asked me to change an account of a story he told about his dad. A minor, like I changed one word. Um, uh, uh, <coughs> I think, um, <coughs> excuse me. I think I was making it was when Pete Hillary's dad became the third person to the South Pole in the 1958. He was to come and support um, Fuchs, um, a um, uh, an English aristocrat who was going to walk and be the first person there and go across the whole continent and Hillary was to put in these supply depots from the other side and Hillary being Hillary um, was getting close and Fuchs coming from the other side sensed that Hillary was going to try and gazump him and get to the uh, uh, South Pole before him and I think I referred to Hillary as the New Zealand upstart and Pete asked me to change that to something else Um, uh, and uh, yeah, Hillary in in his uh, true style powered ahead he had these um converted tractors running on um 
uh, caterpillar treads that he'd made himself with some mates in New Zealand, and he'd burst across the continent, got to the South Pole before Fuchs, who was he was meant to let get there first, and you know all the film crews were going to be there to him, and they radioed Hillary so, you know, the t- night before to warn him off, essentially, and stay where he was. And they were all gathered around the radio, Hillary and his um, mates, some of them from um, his trip to Mount Everest. And when the radio call came through, essentially alerting him to stop, and there was radio silence, and uh, Hillary's gang responded with rhubarb and turned the communications off. <laughs> and uh, barreled on to the South Pole in the next couple of days. And, um, uh, yeah... Fergus was absolutely furious with him and I think Hillary sat like a sort of scolded dog on the back of one of his tractors <laughs> heading back. Fergus wouldn't let him sit inside. He had to sit on the outside <laughs> of anything. So, yeah, that was the only change in the book. Yeah, Hillary, the upstart, and Pete made it something different. I can't remember what it was, but that was the only change in the whole book. It's a source of tremendous pride in New Zealand, that story. Yeah. They, they love the Hillary's, but yes. that, that one in particular resonates beautifully, I think. Yeah, Sir Edward's good at uh, giving the raised middle finger to uh, <laughs> any sense of uh, pomposity or um, entitlement. Your book is full of beautiful photographs of your experience, and in 2005, SLR digital cameras were on the market, but you, you were still shooting with film at the time. Mm. Well, I had a, a, a SLR digital and I thought, oh, well, maybe I'll take this. I've got this sort of newish camera. And I was looking through all the uh, instructions to see how it might fare in the um, freezing conditions. It said not to be taken below zero um, uh, Celsius. I thought, hmm, probably not the ideal uh, uh, camera to take. Um, given the batteries and how the cold just destroys batteries and you know, saps the life out of them, I was thinking, how am I going to manage this? So I determined to take um, uh, an old Canon A1, which did require a, uh, a small battery. So I went to my tailor. I bought about 10 spare batteries for the camera and I gave him a couple of lengths of elastic and some Velcro. And I told him I needed to sew these batteries into an elasticized belt with a Velcro strip so I could put it under my jacket and put it around my waist to keep the batteries warm. And so when I need to access a battery, I can just cut the hole and pop a battery out so they can't get, they can't get lost because they're sewn into the belt. And uh, he looked at, at me like I was an absolute moron. He said, what am I doing this for? I explained, going to Antarctica, batteries don't like the cold, they lose their power very quickly. And I need to keep them essentially on me at all times, is you know, everything I've read about batteries. So I had this belt, and so, yeah, sure enough, I went through maybe half of the batteries in the course of the time. Uh, but Pete Hillary took a, uh, a digital camera, um, and he had no problem and used it the whole time. <laughs> so I don't know. Anyway, I went for um, safety first, and it was great, but I could have potentially taken the uh the digital camera but there would have been battery issues so we had a little solar panel and he charged his phone up on on that during the day and we had his phone his um his camera and we also charged the satellite phone off the um thing but you know who knows it could have been cloudy the whole time and we wouldn't have been able to do that so um i was uh over cautious and uh it worked the results were worth it i think the yeah it was beautiful yeah yeah that was nice i think that velvia um 
Fuji film. I think it was. I was going to ask if it was yeah. Bellevue because Bellevue, the, yeah, the color, mm. color, yeah, cast. which is great for landscapes. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for your time, Jason Kimberley. It's been a pleasure talking to you, and um, yeah, I, I love your book and I love your work, The Cool Australia. Thank you for having me on Ice Coffee. As mentioned in the interview, links to Cool Australia will be provided in the show notes. Now, getting toasty. Toasty has a number of meanings, but in Antarctic English, or Antarctlish, it refers to the range of odd behaviours exhibited by people operating in small teams in remote circumstances over long periods. In other contexts, you might hear it referred to as cabin fever or stir-crazy. I don't pretend to understand the psychology behind any of this, and I've never wintered, so I've never experienced any of the following behaviours or observed them in others, as far as I'm aware. Maybe I just didn't notice. Perhaps part of the toastiness comprises not noticing stuff. I know after my longest stretches at sea, no one was making eye contact. Perhaps that's how toastiness starts. Anywho, people have done some odd things while living in Antarctica, ranging from calmly reaching for an axe and murdering their chess opponent while still sitting at the board, through to simply staring into the distance a lot and failing to finish their... Any quirk or neurosis is likely to be amplified by sustained isolation. Many of the injuries dealt with by base staff during the winter are due to fights, often over matters that appear trivial to anyone outside the scenario, but which fill the entire world if your world only extends to the walls of the buildings you're trapped inside with that inconsiderate idiot. I mean, what was he thinking? I've already watched that movie three times this week, and then he put his coffee cup on my tray. My fucking tray. His tray was right there, and he put his coffee on my tray. And the title started rolling, and the damn clarinet kicked off the score. I mean, you understand, don't you? You'd do the same thing in my shoes, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you? Many of the symptoms of toastiness sound akin to getting old. You wander into rooms and can't remember what you're supposed to be doing there. That sort of thing but impacting on every aspect of your day. Routines help people function, but the longer people remain isolated, the more the appearance of autopilot sets in. Late winter accounts of people spontaneously bursting into tears mid-sentence sound distressingly similar to acute depression. Accounts of people attempting an escape from their confinement, usually ill-prepared and apparently oblivious to the certain doom aspects of their gambit, sound akin to senile dementia. Some of the worst examples of people getting toasty that I've come across in my reading of the history of Antarctic exploration arise in the story of the Belgian expedition led by Adrian de Gerlache. Wintering in the Bellingshausen Sea in 1898, poor preparation, language barriers and poor diet led to a crew-wide malaise, several members experiencing mental health issues with lifelong impacts. Some members of the expedition went on to do great things, some never recovered some died. A more detailed account of the Belgica saga lies in the offing, but we've got about 50 years of history to cover between this episode and that. Accounts of mental health problems arise from several other expeditions, but it seems the Belgians copped the worst deal at an expedition-wide extent. Perhaps other accounts just edit out the bits where everyone got toasty. Ambient conditions in Antarctica make long periods in close quarters with limited company inevitable. 
Humans don't seem particularly well-tuned to this, and the psychological screening processes geared to ensure cohesive, happy teams, a recent development in Antarctic project management, are far from perfect. My reading and experiences suggest sociopaths are overrepresented in Antarctica, either because the opportunities the Great White South offers align in some way with their needs, or because some aspects of life there make their presence more obvious than when set against the backdrop of normal life. Still, coffee's ready. Anyone fancy a game of chess? This episode, I'd like to thank Heather. We'll know why.